If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, the UK's best-selling history magazine. I'm David Musgrove. Welcome to the final episode in our four-part podcast mini-series, The Medieval Masterclass with the historian Dan Jones. This was first recorded as a virtual lecture programme in the late summer of 2021 to coincide with Dan's book, Powers and Thrones, A New History of the Middle Ages. During four episodes, Dan takes us on a journey through the four ages of medieval history, from the collapse of the Western Roman Empire through to the dawning of Renaissance ideas, and religious revolution. So in the last session, we heard about the rise of the Mongol Empire and how that impacted on life and politics across Europe. Plus, we talked about the increasingly important place of trade and merchants and urban life generally. Now, the development of that urban life was sorely tested by the big event that kicks off the last period that we are considering, and that is 1348 to 1527, an age which Dan calls the Age of Revolution. And of course, you'll spot the start of that period coincides with the spread of that terrible medieval pandemic, the Black Death. Dan will introduce us to the Black Death when he gives us the overview of the period in just a second. And then after that, he and I enjoy 
a conversation where we explore some of the themes in a bit more detail. And just to remind you, if you want to watch the video of our conversation and enjoy the extended audience Q&A that we had in the live masterclass session, you can do that at our website, historyextra.com forward slash video, though you do need to be a website subscriber to access that content. Right, over to Dan to introduce us finally to the Age of Revolution, 1348 to 1527. The final session, today's session, deals with what what in Powers and Thrones is the the fourth and final part of the book, which is called Revolution. And the story, this is the story of the later Middle Ages, by which we normally mean the 14th and 15th centuries. Uh, The dating of the end of the Middle Ages uh, in Powers and Thrones, I've given 1527 as a slightly arbitrary, although slightly not arbitrary, date for the end of the Middle Ages. Um, The beginning of the later Middle Ages, I've started with the Black Death. So it's with the Black Death that uh, I think we have to begin when we're considering the the last 150, 200 years of of the medieval world, uh, because this was a a cataclysm really like, like nothing Else, like certainly like nothing we've seen uh, since the Second World War. It's it's a comparably uh, enormous epochal historic moment. Now we've just lived through uh, a pandemic, an unpleasant and uh, and lethal and turbulent and disruptive pandemic. Um, I believe the global death toll from COVID nineteen is somewhere between four and five million currently. I may be wrong about that. Uh, apologies if so, but I think it's I think it's in that order of magnitude certainly, um, which is a a tiny fraction overall of of a world population of seven billion. Um, the Black Death, best estimates suggest the Black Death killed between 40 and 60, probably closer to 60% of Europe's population. Uh, it began in, th- in 1347, or certainly it came to Europe in 1347 by the Black Sea, by the Mongols, um, Mongol army besieging uh, a Genoese port and Black Sea. It was brought to Europe by merchants, it spread very, very rapidly over the next four or five years. Um, and in that in that first wave, decimated is the wrong word, because decimated means to reduce by 10%. It, it was far, far worse than decimation of the European population, as I say, 40 to 60%. The accounts from the time are harrowing. The, uh, the, the disease returned in waves throughout the 14th century, in the 1360s, 1370s, 1390s. It came back and back and back. And in the case of, let's take England, for example, the population was reduced from possibly 6 million at the beginning of the 14th century, reduced somewhat by the Great Famine at the start of the 14th century, but uh, the the Black Death took the biggest chunk out of the uh, English population, to around 1.5 to 2 million afterwards. And the population never recovered to pre-Black, or or did not recover to pre-Black Death levels until the uh, 18th into 19th centuries. So this was a profoundly, I mean, you, and you can't, you can't imagine those kind of figures, well, possibly you can't imagine those kind of figures full stop, but you can't imagine those kind of, of drastic uh, population adjustments without uh, also imagining enormous social change to follow. And that's exactly what happened 
in the later Middle Ages. Some of the consequences of the Black Death beyond the, the mere statistical population um, decline, a very rapid population decline, were uh, the uh, enormous travails of governments, such as the government of Edward III, to try and economically um, freeze time as though the Black Death hadn't happened. Um, in England, this took the form of the Ordinance and Statute of Labourers, which was passed in 1349-50, which aimed to uh, artificially manipulate the economy in the favour of landlords and stop their businesses and livelihoods uh, being destroyed and the, the structure of feudal, post-feudal, late-feudal, bastard-feudal society being destroyed along with it. Um, in response to that, what you see in the second half of the 14th century is uh, a series of what we would now call populist revolts. The, the, um, the Jacquerie in France in the 1350s, there are, there are um, further rebellions in in big towns and big cities in France, um, such as the revolt of the Hammermen in Paris. We have uh, the Chiompi revolt in Florence. And then, of course, the big one, um, certainly in, in terms of English history, the Peasants' Revolt of 1381. And you see a, a legacy of popular rebellion, in fact, after the Black Death, that reaches all the way into, well, certainly the 15th century, again, to take the English case, Jack Cage Rebellion in 1450, uh, or uh, you could go as far as saying the Pilgrimage of Grace um, and or the German Peasants' War of the 1520s, Pilgrimage of Grace in England um, during the dissolution of the monasteries in 1537. So there's a big, big uh, legacy of population uh, population decline and um, uh, popular rebellion, popular rioting, um, social disharmony in the wake of Black Death. However, it's not all terrible news. Medieval history, of course, has this reputation of which we spoke about right at the start of, of being just one succession of brutal and barbaric and terrible and depressing things, uh, one after the other. Some of the other legacies of the Black Death, at least in part, are an extraordinary renewal and revival in the arts. So, although the beginning of the Renaissance, in you know, the, 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 this transformation in literature, in architecture, in um, in thinking about politics and society, and of course, most famously, in art and sculpture, although some of that predates the Black Death, there seems to be a response in post-Black Death society of enormous creativity, um, and we we see uh, in Italy and uh, and Flanders, you know, the Netherlands particularly a flourishing of great art and great uh, artists in the Black Death world. We also see a, a changing in the shape of the earth itself as viewed from Europe, because in the 15th century, this is the age of the great navigation. So for, it begins at the start of the 15th century with the great sort of exploration of European navigators travelling largely to begin with around the Atlantic world, trying to push further and further south down the western coast of Africa, and eventually, um, with Columbus in the 1490s, sailing west in the hope of getting to China, the Indies, and bumping into uh, the Bahamas, and then beyond it, the Americas, the Caribbean, and mainland America. Um, so around the same time, there's the uh, another explorer, Vasco da Gama, manages to get around the Cape of of good hope and finds way into the Indian Ocean uh, around the bottom of the African continent. So as this develops, there are new trade routes, there are um, 
new trades, some of them uh, very profitable, some of them absolutely barbaric, as well as being very profitable and thinking obviously here of the sale of African slaves, uh, transportations uh, across the, the Atlantic. All of no, This isn't solely the legacy of the Black Death, but it is an important, incredibly important feature of the Black Death world, of the post-Black Death world. Um, so we've got rioting, we've got rebellion, we've got economic change, we've got uh, artistic renewal and revival, we've got um, exploration. And of course, the last thing that maybe we'll have time to talk about today, because it occupies the last chapter of Powers and Thrones, is the arrival in the West of the printing press and following from that, um, Martin Luther's protest against corruption in the Catholic Church, which gave rise to the Reformation. And since our concept of the Middle Ages begins with the Reformation, as I said right at the start, the, the, the term the Middle Age is a term coined by John Fox in 1563 when he's writing an ecclesiastical history. Uh, it seems a, as good a place as any to end our, our tour of the Middle Ages by talking about uh, Lutheranism and the Reformation. So hopefully we'll get to that and I, I won't just bang on and on and on about the first thing we talk about like I did last week and then have to crush everything else into the last five minutes. That would be good and professional. Perfect. We will definitely get to the Reformation today. Um, right. Um, so let's let's just kick off because we've talked about this um, a bit in previous sessions about climate. Obviously, climate is a, a, a something we worry about today. Um, What's going on with the climate in the 14th century? Because we have these this run of of, of, of bad uh, bad harvests and famine at the start of the 14th century, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. Now, if you think back to the first session, I think we talked about the Roman climate optimum, which had created uh, fruitful conditions for the Roman Empire to flourish in the you know, first century BC, first century AD, second into the third century AD, and then there was a, a decline in the in the um, in temperatures and a, a drying effect across Western Europe, which contributed to the uh, downfall of the Roman Empire. We see something comparable in the turn of the 13th into 14th centuries. There is a sudden and relatively sharp fall in temperatures by a, up to two degrees centigrade. Now, that's a serious temperature adjustment to happen in not a very long space of time. And this, this occurs around, it's very hard to date it specifically, but around the end of the 13th into the beginning of the 14th centuries. And the consequence, this is the beginning of what we call the Little Ice Age, which lasted all the way through to the 18th century. And you see uh, rivers like the Thames freezing in the winter, something which, of course, we don't see today an era of rising temperatures, but which we haven't seen since the end of the Little Ice Age. This changing climate is associated with um, periods, uh, with a period, certainly beginning the 14th century, of absolutely atrocious weather. And uh, the most obvious and severe uh, example of that is what the, the weather that produces the Great Famine, um, in England, British Isles, Western Europe. Great famine takes place uh, between 1314 and 1321. And it's a, there are a succession of about five years within that period in which there is no summer. There's, it's not like, ah, there was a few really hot days and then it was just kind of like 20 degrees and a bit cloudy. There was no summer. It was cold and it rained as though it were winter all the way through the summer. Now, in uh, a society which is agrarian, primarily agrarian in character, and in which people's lives are much more precariously linked to the skies and the grounds than ours 
uh, ours are today, or directly precariously linked to the skies and the ground than ours are today. Um, that's a big problem, because if you don't have a summer, not only do you not raise the crops that were planted the previous autumn, you can't, you, you then don't have the grain to, to plant for the next year. So you effectively get two years of, of terrible hunger and dearth. Um, from one failed summer. And there are four or five failed summers uh, in the space of about seven or eight years. And this produces, uh, well, estimates say about a uh, 10% death toll in some places. Now, in the context of the 14th century, that's like, eh, well, it was going to get worse. We know, we know it was going to get worse. But if you compare it to, say, the Russian famine of the early 20th century, it was, incompa- it was, it was worse by an order of magnitude. You're talking about one in 10 people dying of hunger. Um, And not only does that have an immediate impact in terms of the death toll itself, it also then weakens, you have a weakened population in its wake, not just of humans, but of animals as well. In the wake of the the Great Famine, 1314 through 21, you see a panzootic, a a moraine uh, in which animals die, herds are, are losing 40, 50, 60% of their numbers. So again, again, that then has a weakening effect on the population. And so this is the prelude, really, to the Black Death in the 1340s. Across Western Europe, certainly, and, and the case of England is, is one that's been particularly well documented, you have a great weakening, as well as a, you know, a, a, drop, a small drop-off relatively speaking, and an enormous weakening of populations, so that in the 1340s, when we see a mutation of Yersinia pestis, uh, the, the bacteria which causes plague, bubonic plague, the Black Death, a serious mutation in which it becomes incredibly virulent and incredibly lethal. This is like the, the way worse than the Delta version of the mutation of COVID. I mean, imagine that and multiply it by 100. Um, you also have a population which is structurally uh, readied to be taken apart by this plague. Clearly, like, you know, a, a horrific event, as as you say. So I'm just wondering, so you, you've just described their terrible, terrible weather, terrible famine, and then suddenly they get hit with this absolutely disgusting disease. I mean, we worry today about our, our you know, our well-being, our, our, our mental state from, from COVID. Presumably, this run of, of, of terrible stuff in the 14th century must have absolutely sort of hammered the mentality of people. Yeah, I mean, undoubtedly, it's psychologically extremely traumatic. And um, you see people behaving in extremely strange ways. Uh, to, but not irrational, but um, but unusual and extreme. Let's give a good example. Um, I think the example I've used in the book to try and illustrate the extremity of human behaviour in, in the wake of this incomprehensible plague is the, an example which is written down by Robert of Avesbury, uh, a chronicler based in England, uh, in the employ of the Archbishop of Canterbury in his London offices at Lambeth Palace. I think it's 1349. Robert of Avesbury goes out into the streets of London and writes down what he sees. What he sees is a parade of Italian flagellants. Now, the flagellant movement predated the Black Death, although it does seem to have links with other outcrops of of plague in in Italian cities. But the flagellant movement is one by which people uh, scourge themselves. They beat themselves into effectively a bloody pulp in the hope that through the mortification of the flesh, they can call down 
God's mercy to uh, themselves and to others on earth. And in the Black Death, as it's raging in London, it did come to England, uh, 1348 is its big arrival in England. In 1349, it's still raging. And in the streets of London, Robert of Avesbury sees a parade of Italian flagellants marching through the streets. And as they march, they sing. And as they sing, they whip themselves with these barbed scourges on their backs. And then some of them lie down and they whipped by the, the fellow flagellants. And people are out in the street milling around watching them. It's a curious spectacle, of course. Um, and they do it twice a day, every day, uh, in the hope that the plague will go away. Now, as an aside, it's quite interesting, or I found it quite interesting writing about that during a pandemic. Had I written that part of the story in, let's say, 2017, 2018, it would have just been a sort of curious event. And uh, and one would have, it would be quite cinematic in its way, but one wouldn't have thought too much about it. But writing it in the middle of the COVID pandemic, I was having thoughts that would not otherwise have occurred, such as, oh my God, that was obviously a super spreader event. I bet the flagellants weren't wearing masks. I mean, was there any social distancing? That's, you know, our our perspective on history changes according to our times, which is a theme to which we've returned often in these masterclasses, I think. Um, But that's one example of the extremity of human reaction. Nowhere really was spared, was it? It spread right across Europe from the the, the, the Mongol Empire that we talked about uh, in the last session, right across. The, no, no one escaped this. That's right. So the the it appears to have entered, if you like, the European kind of uh, ecosystem. That's the right word. For, via Kaffa in the Black Sea. Um, the Mongols were besieging it. It was held by the Genoese, Germans. And so the story goes, uh, the, Mon- the plague, this virulent and very rapidly lethal form of plague was spreading among the Mongol army. They were besieging a city and they had siege catapults. And so it said by a merchant who escaped from the city, they were throwing the corpses of plague victims over the walls of the city in their catapults, a sort of biological weapon. Now, there's some dispute about whether that can actually be true because it depends how we think the plague actually did most of its spreading. There's there's still a thing that people haven't really properly worked out about the Black Death. If it could only spread through flea bites, which which seems to be the, which people have assumed for a long time, that the plague was spread by fleas which lived on rats. And, and there were so many rats, and people lived in such close proximity to rats, that, that was how, that was how the, the plague spread. And so it got into your blood via flea bites. It, it, I think it must have been spread on the breath as well. It must have, have mutated a mnemonic means of spreading. But if that's the case, it's still not totally clear to me whether the Mongols could have given it to the Genoese inside Kaffa by throwing corpses over, because corpses don't breathe, right? I think. I'm not a medical man, but I think that's one good way you can tell it's a corpse. So um, whether that story is true, who knows? But anyway, the point is, I'm labouring a redundant point, I suppose. By the Black Sea, 
merchants and troops coming out of Kaffa, going through Constantinople, back into into the Italian city-states, bring the disease with them. And once it gets into once it gets into those merchant networks, it spreads everywhere. Now, medieval people were not stupid. They realised that disease transmission uh, was a person-to-person thing. And so the the concept of quarantine, I mean, literally locking yourself away for 40 days, comes from the Black Death era, because that was, people realised that although you would have parades of flagellants, just like you'd have anti-vaxxer rallies in Trafalgar Square at the time of, of, of COVID, you know, People were getting together, but they were, there was also a concept of quarantine. Now, we can see that most famously in a work of literature, Boccaccio's Decameron. Boccaccio's Decameron is the story of some well-to-do, uh, you know, right-thinking young Florentine men and women who flee the city to the countryside and basically have a bubble, live in a bubble, what we call now, and they're bored in their bubble and there's no Netflix so they tell each other stories in lieu of it. It's the same. It's the same thing. Um, of course, Boccaccio has invented this, and, and the, the purpose of this is a vehicle for Boccaccio to tell a hundred different stories. However, uh, that's one of the other responses, and it shows us that that people were doing what we would now uh, think is the right thing to try and limit the spread of disease. But it was just very hard to, very hard to do, very hard to stop a pandemic, as we've just found out, even with modern technology. So one of the things that we've sort of discovered during the current pandemic is the government's response uh, is is an interesting thing. And and our government here has has tried to uh, make things better for people, introduce furlough schemes to keep people in work and that sort of thing. Um, I think, would it be fair to say that the response of powers and states uh, looking at, you know, the title of your your book, you know, looking at the nature of power wasn't necessarily quite so attuned to that it wasn't looking out for the for the good of the common people maybe yes um in fact you the the response let's take the case of england because it's the it's a it's a very very illustrative and useful um way to look at things place to look at in this context in england the black death arrives and the government of the day is headed by edward iii young still young yeah young-ish Edward III, in the middle of the Hundred Years' War. You know, he's just 1346, the siege of uh, Battle of Cressy, 1347, the amazing siege of Calais, the English have taken Calais. So he's been very busy with war, and now, very, 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 very expensive war, by the way. Uh, he's now got a pandemic on his hands. The response of the English royal government is remarkably rapid, um, and they it, it demonstrates a very clear and sophisticated economic understanding of what's about to happen. What it doesn't demonstrate is much of a concern for what we would now term social justice. But the concept of social justice in the Middle Ages is not the same as the concept of social justice in the 21st century. So what does Edward, the, Edward III's government do? Well, it, it issues quickly the ordinance and then later passed when they get a parliament together, it's turned into parliamentary statute. Ordinance slash statute of labourers. What does this do? It says, market forces are at play. I'm going to paraphrase. Because there are, you know, we've lost a lot of people, like half the people, um, workers are now incredibly scarce. I mean, actually, that's something we can imagine today. We're seeing, we're seeing this happen. There are parts of the 
problems we've had in the UK this week have been a similar sort of thing. It's not people who drop dead. There are other reasons why we're short of workers, but there's a massive shortage of workers because of a pandemic. That's that's also true in the 1340s. So the, the ordinance slash statute of labourers says, um, well, there are too few workers and they're going around asking for higher wages to work because now they've got their choice of employees. Now, you might say rightly so, particularly in England in the 14th century, because at the beginning of the 14th century, there'd been six million people living in England, far too many, really, for um, or the population had grown to the absolute limit of what the agricultural economy could sustain at that point. Malthus would tell us it was ripe for a pandemic. The Statue of Labour says, so, you know, you can understand people. So at that point, when there were six million people in the country, wages were, were very low and there was, it was very, the, thing, the game was loaded in favour of the employer. Now, post-Black Death, it's loaded in favour of the employee. But the government doesn't really like the look of that because partly the government and the sort of uh, the, the polity, let's say, the, the small but rich and powerful political, politically involved class of, of, that runs England on a national and local level, they are landowners and they're employers and they are going to go bust if they have to pay triple wages to get workers to come and work on their estates. It's going to be a big problem if serfs, you know, people, indentured labourers, people bonded to the land, start buggering off to the next estate because they can get paid over there. So the Ordinance Statute of Labourers say, right, well, this is no good. It's going to be illegal for anybody to take wages of anything higher than this schedule of wages. And they list the wages for every single imaginable job in England at that time. I can't remember exactly, you know, it's like Carter, four pence a day. Mower, three pence a day. Roofer, one shilling a day. Like, it's like that. Um, and it says anybody who takes wages of more than this is breaking the law. Anybody who pays wages of more than this is breaking the law. And it tries to just freeze the economy pre-Black Death. Very good, in theory, for landowners. Um, obviously impossible to enforce in practice. And yet the government tries, not only for a couple of years, but for literally two generations to continue uh, investigating breaches of the labour laws. You've got labour commissions which go out again and again and again and again to try and make sure that, and try and police this, uh, this artificial structuring of the labour market. And of course, enormous resentment, as, <laughs> as you can well imagine, um, so that, that's the government response. And you're right, it, it does show a quite different set of priorities to uh, the majority of economic responses to COVID today, which have tended to be um, aimed, at least initially, at keeping ordinary people employed. However, it's possible to say that, that they stem from the same fundamental principle, which is to stop the, the structure of society falling to bits. The medieval, late medieval perception of the structure of society is of a sort of pyramid shape, a triangle shape, um, being the natural order of things with the king at the top and the barons and the gentry, you know, and, and the people at the bottom have the worst time. 
And that's the order of things. That's the sort of divinely ordained order of being. And that's like hardwired into the perception of what society should look like. We don't. We have a much flatter conception of what society should look like. It's sort of flat with a little bobble on top of it. Um, but the 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 you know the reason governments intervene to keep people in work, I don't think was necessarily just because everyone in government's nice and wanted people in work. The the alternative to doing that would have been um, anarchy and the complete breakdown of social order and mass unemployment of stretching probably to forty to fifty percent. Uh, or people dying in their place of work. So uh, the principle, which is keep the keep the fabric of society knitted together, is the same. But the the conception of how you do that uh, and who matters uh, when you do that is, is different. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I mean, he's an old guy by this point, and far part, long past his uh, his his best as an artist. But his his very presence is seen as an enormous badge of pride for this young Renaissance prince, just as having Holbein around the English court, producing some of the the greatest portraits of that era, of, of any era, is an asset in and of itself to Henry VIII. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Okay, so that's sort of dropped us into, into the concept of the medieval mindset a bit, and we'll, we'll come back to that, I'm sure. And uh, obviously that, that, that medieval societal approach is, is okay if you're at the top and maybe not so good if you're at the bottom, and clearly people weren't so weren't very happy about uh, 
the the attempt to maintain that status quo, and thus we start to get this this period of uh, of revolution. And I think you talk about it in the book. You compare it to the Arab Spring, because saying that like you, when you get one rebellion, one revolt, you tend to get more, right? Uh, and that's what we get into. We 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 get a a a spring, uh, well, a, a season, uh, decades of revolutions across Europe. So just just uh, sort of talk us through that. You do look. You, and you do have to step back a bit because the Arab Spring 2011 was a concentration for a few months, right? The period of popular slash populist rebellion, when you when you look at the, the end of the 14th century, really has to begin in the 1350s with the Jacquerie. Serious disorder around mainly northern France and uh, and Paris. Some of it stirred up politically, but there, there is a, a real popular element of... Um, I don't want to get too deep into the demographics of the Jacquerie, but of ordinary people going after their social superiors. Um, spurred, I think, by a sense that the whole of society has just been chucked up in the air. And, you know, to return to a modern example, if you look at that first, say, nine months of COVID, it coincided with, you know, the Arab Spring is one thing, but it coincided with other protest movements around um, even if we you know, just take the UK and America, the sort of the BLM protests that ensued on the death of George Floyd were not directly linked to COVID. And you might say that the Extinction Rebellion stuff that's happening at the moment was not, is not directly linked to COVID. However, in a world in which, which has been rocked by one catastrophe, uh, and which seems to have had its kind of social glue uh, warmed slightly, so it's capable of moving a little bit. Um, other protest movements, which are not directly related, can flourish in that broader environment. So we see it today, and we certainly see it in the end of the 14th century. That being said, there is a sort of Arab Spring-type moment which occurs around the 1380s. Now, there'd been a long... The Black Death comes in waves. It's usually, everyone talks about Black Death, 1348, 1349. Black Death comes back in the 1360s. The Black Death comes back in the 1370s. The Black Death comes back in the 1390s. Comes back quite seriously in the 1370s. So this third major wave of plague coincides with uh, a real sort of uptick in populist and urban rebellion across Western Europe. Now, by far the biggest... Um, and the best known of those is the Peasant Revolt in England in the summer of 1381, which we can talk about a little bit if you want, uh, because it does show you just how radically people were beginning to think in a world that had been rocked to its foundations by a pandemic. Let's chart the journey that you chart in your book between the Peasant's Revolt and uh, Jack Cage's Revolt in the uh, mid 15th century, because you make uh, a very interesting point. I'll just uh, read the quote. Uh, the complaints of Cade's rebels were a bold, one-sided, but educated critique of England's many problems from a class of people who are now fully engaged in the political process rather than seeking to ride roughshod over it. So something's happened there, right, in the, in the, in the nature of revolt between those two periods. Yeah. So, yeah, let, I'll spare you the, the blow-by-blow account of the Peasants' Revolt of 1381. There is a good book about it called Summer of Blood. Um, ho-ho. <laughs> ho-ho. Yeah, very good. My first book. So it's a subject dear to my heart. Um, 
the, but let's let's think about what the manifesto is of the rebels of 1381 when they try to burn London to the ground and there's you know rebellion up and down England in this this crazy summer. The rebels of 1381, led by men whose names are given in the chronicles as Wat Tyler and the the preacher John Ball and uh, Jack Straw and so on, they are. Primitive isn't quite the right word, but they're very, very radical and they're very, very basic. They are fantasy. Uh, they are radical, um, impassioned nonsense. Um, <laughs> that's not to say that people don't believe them, but they're, they're, they're impractical. So what? Tale, what? So the, the sort of the watchword of the rebels of 1381 is, is Jack as uh, John Ball's coupler. When Adam delves and Eve span, who then was the gentleman? The idea is all of society and and the the whole of society is uh, is corruption and and nonsense and actually all of lordship uh, needs to be abolished and all all of this needs to be abolished and um, I mean that's literally in their demands their demands to Richard II who's the king by this point are no more lordship uh, the church all church land to be redistributed uh, there's just going to be the king and the people and that's going to be it. Um, and they want, uh, you know, blankets uh, sweeping away of pretty much every law in existence. They want to destroy the whole of society and start again. It's um, I got a lot of, of pelters the other day for describing this as an apocalyptic movement. Um, but it is an apocalyptic movement. It wants, it wills the destruction of society, um, even if that hasn't been quite thought through, what that would really look like. So that's 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 sort of what you what you've got in 1381. By the time you get to 1450, which is the next big, really serious uh, English popular revolt, which is Jack Cade's rebellion against um, the government, the corrupt government of Henry VI, the demands have become infinitely more sophisticated, and they're no longer um, elemental Maoist burn it to the ground and start again. They are nuanced critiques of what's actually going on in politics and specific suggestions of uh, who needs to be got rid of and how thing, how policy needs to be shifted in order for a better outcome. Uh, so something's happened between those two things because it's a broadly similar uh, geographical location that the rebels of the Peasant Revolt in 1381 and the Jack Cage rebels in, in 1450 are drawn from. It's the, it's the Thames estuary, really. It's Essex and Kent. It's a broadly similar um, target for the rebels. It's it's got its central government. It's they go to London to protest it. And so, but what's happened? Well, what's happened actually is that although the rebels of 1381 had had abjectly failed uh, to achieve any of their political ends whatsoever, you know, Richard II's government had taken um, vicious revenge against the rebels of 1381. Demography and economics had won out. You know, you'd you'd lost sixty percent of the people, and the labour market, for all that the government wished it it would not change, had changed. And what's and what's critical here is that serfdom, which had still been a relatively strong institution, uh, in fact, probably a strengthening institution before the Black Death. So this idea of of peasants not as just poor people being paid a pittance for their work by their lord, but actually, to all intents and purposes, 
the property of their Lord, uh, bound to work on the land uh, with no choice uh, and, and restricted to a manorial system of courts rather than having a- any access to the more sophisticated uh, machinery of, of central justice. Serfdom had, had gone. Serfdom had gone in England by this point. And there'd been a, a consequent knitting into the fabric of basic political society of people much further down the social order than had hitherto been the case. So more people, what would be equivalent today, or in recent history, more people are reading newspapers, more people have got the vote. You know, when, when you see these things happen, let's take the beginning of the 20th century, more and more people have got, have got the vote. What do you see? You see the rise of, of labour movements, of political labour movements. Well, it's a similar sort of process. The politicisation of the lower orders of England has taken place between the 1380s and the 1450s. And that is a a major development. And in a way, you can say, if we're characterising, or if we're making a list of things that mark the transition from the medieval to the early modern, uh, a greater politicisation of the lower orders and a greater basic freedom, certainly from serfdom and bondage, of the lower orders would be one thing that characterises the early modern and differentiates it from the the late medieval. Okay, so we've we've got a a political awakening of sorts, a change of mindsets of sorts there that we're looking at. And when we're thinking about changing mindsets, that drops us into the Renaissance. You know, it's quite a hard thing to define, but luckily um, uh, someone's defined it for me recently. Um, From the late 14th century, there flourished first in Italy and soon afterwards beyond the Alps in Northern Europe, a cultural movement known as the Renaissance. It was a time in which creative people discovered new or lost approaches to literature, the arts and architecture, and from there sprang novel theories of political philosophy, natural science, medicine and anatomy. And I was very pleased to to learn in your book that um, that we know that the Renaissance began on the 26th of April, 1326. That's right, yeah? Does this involve a mountain? Yeah. Petrarch going up his mountain? Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? Yes, so the uh, Jacob Burkhart writing... A long time ago, I can't remember exactly when he wrote uh, this, claimed that the uh, the Renaissance had begun on the, the this exact day in 1326 when um, the great poet uh, Petrarch climbed a mountain. And he went up the mountain with his brother, a very dangerous uh, mountain to go up. And he looked out at the scene and considered the world that was below him and had poetic thoughts about it. Um, and to Burkhardt, this was the, you could pinpoint, you know, he, Burkhardt thought nobody, no medieval person before Petrarch would ever have done this. They wouldn't have climbed the mountain just for the sake of climbing the mountain, just because it was there. Um, to use, is that Mallory's phrase? Or whatever it is. I think so. Yeah. Uh, that, that just wouldn't have occurred. And so, and so in Burkhardt's definition, um, the, the, what underpins the Renaissance is the pursuit of, uh, of beauty and art and knowledge as as a high spiritual end in itself and as a route to the divine. Um, and that the divine thereby can be f- is found within the individual and their artistic impulses and responses. Uh, and to Burkhardt, that's the difference. Now, I, th- I think that there may be something to be said for some parts of that argument. 
certainly, I mean, it may, but it may not be an argument of differentiation. It just may be an argument of characterization. We may just simply be saying, what is it about? What's going on in at the, at the root of art in the 15th century, art and literature? Uh, well, it's an internalization. Okay, it's not the outward contemplation of, in the Christian tradition, Christ and, and you know, and the saints and, and whatever. It's the uh, it's the, the route to the divine being turned inwards, um, and I think that's that might well be fair. And if you, I, I think that that the 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 inc- increasing awareness of and concern with the shall we say human condition and the uh the internal life of the individual is one thing that characterizes um the artistic the elemental artistic movement that we we broadly call the renaissance i'll give you a good example of somebody who noticed that at the time uh, if you go to in fact um, uh, if you go to the national gallery i took i took my eldest daughter to the national gallery in london the other day and cuz she's quite interested in art uh, and I took it to see, I said, we're going to go see five paintings. That's my approach to going to galleries. I think you can, otherwise kids particularly just get gallery fatigue and you feel like your head's going to fall off and your legs are going to uh, turn to concrete. Um, so I said, we'll go see five paintings. We went to see Leonardo's Virgin on the Rocks. We went to see the Arnafini portrait by Jan van Eyck. We went to see uh, the Wilton Diptych. Uh, we went to see um, oh, something by Dirk Boots. And we went to see The Ambassadors by Holbein. Now, The Ambassadors by Holbein is, of course, 16th century. But in it, I think Holbein characterises perfectly what the Renaissance is all about. If you can imagine The Ambassadors, it's a very, very large double portrait by Holbein, which features two foreign ambassadors at the court of Henry VIII. And on them, uh, behind them, sorry, is, is a table full of all the latest scientific tools and maps and globes and what have you that... Uh, that are characteristic of the emerging um, world of the Renaissance. This this flourishing in human knowledge and scientific understanding and inquiry about the world. And it's a beautiful painting, and and it's most famous for uh, its weird thing on the floor, which if you stand to the, uh, as you're looking at it, the right side of the painting, uh, it sort of pops out as a 3D skull. Um, and that, that's kind of interesting, and it's a great photo. It's a great painting to show children uh, because uh, it, it's just—it's just cool. It's just like a warry skull on the floor. Now, we—you have to ask why has Holbein done that? Well, he partly has done it to demonstrate the skill of the artist per se, and that's quite a Renaissance thing to do. Uh, partly he's done it um, because hiding a memento mori within a painting uh, that's about human sort of splendor and how people think they're so goddamn clever and that they rule the universe just because they've got technology. Uh, what, what they are not realizing is that, that all flesh is mortal and, and all of this is vanity, right? That's a kind of, but Violet, my oldest daughter, as she was looking at this painting said, well, look at that. Now I thought she'd be interested in the skull, but she'd spotted something else because, and I'd forgotten about it in the top corner of Holbein's The Ambassadors, behind, I think it's a curtain that's just peeled back, is the most tiny little crucifix. It's the only religious symbol in the painting. And what? And it's hidden. It's hidden away. Only a sort of uh, a naive child who hadn't seen this thing many times before would notice it. But my daughter noticed it. Look at 
oh my God, of course. What's happened here is that, you know, after, let's say, depends how we date it, but roughly 100 years of the Renaissance, what Holbein has observed is that the everything is human vanity and everything is, is an obsession with human technology and tools and progress, as we'd call it now, uh, to the absolute diminution of the old ways of contemplating the divine. These people who are pictured in the, in the ambassadors are, are not irreligious men, but their way of interacting with sort of higher, higher planes of knowledge is through technology. Uh, and they've almost entirely forgotten uh, the old ways, which were the, the contemplation of the mysteries of the passion of Christ. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a great analogy for um, what's going on in the Renaissance artistically and spiritually um, as a whole. So um, obviously we need to look out for the work of your daughter as a future art, art critic there. Sounds like she's, I, know, uh, no, she's I, got, I, gave, I gave her this whole spiel and she was like, oh, can we just go? She didn't want that <laughs> at all. I doubt, maybe you guys didn't want it either. Think, think about the title of your book. Um, what did uh, uh, great art, uh, great cultural changes can sort of undermine authority? They can be sort of anti, anti-authoritative. What did powers and thrones think of the Renaissance? Did they support this cultural flowering generally? Well, I think the, the idea of the title Powers and Thrones is, is that the book is a meditation on the different forms that power can take. And I think that art as a form of power uh, is very interesting uh, in this period as a whole. I mean, we, we see it in somewhat earlier in the 12th and 13th centuries, which we touched on last week through um, Gothic architecture with, with building in stone as a form of power. Um, I was in Lincoln Cathedral yesterday and thinking about this very thing. Um, what we see from... Let's take a good example that's in, that's in the book. I mean, I spend a lot of time in, in Powers and Thrones with Jan van Eyck, partly because van Eyck's just my favourite Renaissance artist, I think. I'm, I'm much fonder of the Northerners than of the Italians. Um, but I spend time also with van Eyck because van Eyck... Van Eyck often called the man who invented oil painting. Um, not quite true, but he did take it to places that had not hitherto been. Um, Van Eyck was a, a genius a, a artist, but he was also a sort of um, a bauble, if you like, for Philip the Good, Duke of Burgundy. Very charismatic Burgundian Duke of the 15th century, who in the 1430s uh, was a pivotal player in the Hundred Years' War, because who he threw his alliance in with, be it the Armagnacs, the, the French, or the uh, the English, who were warring over who was going to control northern France in the aftermath of Henry V's conquest, who the Burgundians threw their weight in with, really, really mattered. And there were ambitions to return Burgundy to the status of a kingdom, which, of course, it had been in the much earlier Middle Ages, or at least it had approached that, uh, that status. Um, how did Philip the Good manifest his power? Well, it wasn't simply through war and diplomacy. He was he also placed an inordinate um, weight of uh, prestige on his association with artists. And Van Eyck was his his star artist. He was he had first he paid Van Eyck a fortune 
to have first dibs on his talents. And that could mean sending him out, as he did, to um, the court of the Portuguese when he was mulling over marrying the Infanta. Uh, the, you know, the, the Portuguese princess, in fact, did send him out. It's, it's a little like Holbein going out to, in Henry VIII's reign, to paint Anne of Cleves and sending back that ill-fated portrait that, got, that lost Cromwell's head in the end. Um, Van Eyck becomes a sort of a very, very important asset, power asset for Philip the Good. And I think that when the, one of the things that we see during the Italian Renaissance, and of course this isn't, isn't completely new and unique, but it is, again, it's a feature of the Renaissance, is a, is a, is a very, very close relationship between very talented artists and very wealthy patrons. And one good example might be the Medici, the, you know, Cosimo, but particularly Lorenzo the, the Magnificent, um, banking, political banking dynasty from Florence, who invest a fortune in both private and public art. And they, they really buy into the idea, and I say Lorenzo particularly buys into the idea that, that magnificent, that art... Um, Great public art uh, contributes to the um, the magnificence and the cultural power of a city. Uh, but you know, and we also see then, of course, you, you see that it's most at its in the Vatican with the uh, the Med- against Medici popes spending fortune on um, on completely redesigning the papal palace and apartments. Again, this idea that that great art and great artists add to the luster and thereby the power uh, of political and religious political potentates. And of course, then we get to the 16th century and you have um, Leonardo da Vinci, who's who's had a a variety of patrons around Italy, is is in his dotage taken off um, by uh, Francois Premier to be the, the companion of the king. I mean, he's an old guy by this point and far part, long past his, uh, his, his best as an artist, but his, his very presence is seen as an enormous badge of pride for this young Renaissance prince, just as having Holbein around the English court, producing some of the, the greatest uh, portraits of that era, of, of any era, is an asset in and of itself to Henry VIII and helps advertise the magnificence of the English court, but it's also just something kind of cool to have. Give me a one-minute summation of what the Reformation was all about and why it matters. Um, the Reformation begins with the printing press. The printing press comes along in 1450, Gutenberg prints a Bible. What happens when you can print stuff? Well, a few things happen. You can distribute documents more quickly. Uh, you can replicate and distribute. Um, it's like social media or YouTube or whatever. There's now a quicker route to market. Uh, printing press comes along, and one of the first people to really see its, its uh, potential uses are the popes and, and churchmen. They start printing things known as indulgences. These are little chips that you can buy which knock off your time in purgatory. Uh, and then you, gi- you give money to the church, and then you get one, and then you go, woohoo, I'm, I'm off like 100 years in purgatory or whatever. Um, this is incredibly corrupt, Obviously, Martin Luther, um, uh, a German friar, not a priest, um, notices that this is incredibly corrupt, and he starts writing kind of denunciations, uh, most notably his, uh, his 99 theses, but 95 theses, sorry, uh, but also um, endless, endless, endless. He's like Voltaire, he just can't stop writing. And 
the writings of Martin Luther, just like the indulgences, are printed and circulated incredibly rapidly. Um, and then other, other people start critiquing the Catholic Church as well. And uh, just like in the age of social media, the more extreme kind of angry things you say, the better a response you get and the, the wider it circulates. And what, what you end up with is what we call the Reformation. Two, it's the culture wars of the, the late 15th, early 16th centuries. Well, early 16th century, really. On the one hand, you have people who want to completely reform and rethink spirituality and institutionalize the institutionalized church and do away with bits of it that they consider completely rotten and corrupt. Uh, and on the other hand, you have the forces of reaction, uh, people who don't want to change a bar. So, yeah, the Reformation is a spiritual culture war in the 16th century, which leads to all sorts of things like the breakup of, you know, the um, uh, the break with Rome in, in the English church and Henry VIII drawing a line down the channel and how does the Reformation sort of move the, me- the the medieval mindset? How is the Reformation not a medieval thing as as we move out of the Middle Ages? Well, partly it's it's just that there, it wasn't the case that nobody had challenged the authority of the institutional church until Luther. Hundred years before Luther, Jan Hus in Bohemia had come up with very similar arguments to Luther. But Jan Hus was um, pursued to the death and all of his followers were sort of had crusades preached against them and they were persecuted and killed as heretics. Uh, and the, the institutional power of the Catholic Church, um, which had reached its high watermark and had had its, uh, the, the sort of the high bar for its ambition set in 1215, uh, the Fourth Lateran Council by Pope Innocent III, that remained broadly, broadly unchallenged. What separates, what in, in that instance, the medieval from the early modern, is the uh, the fact that that after Luther, that's no longer the case. It's it's criticism of the church has been is totally absorbed into international politics and where you stand on. It's, no, it's not like the Great Schism at the end of the 14th century, early 15th century, where you just have two rival popes, or sometimes three rival popes, and and countries line up according to which one they want, because those two popes don't fundamentally disagree on gigantic, deep issues of theology. Uh, it's, it's a question of who gets to actually be the pope. What's different about the Reformation is that there are people saying there shouldn't even be a pope. And that is, is, as I say, that's bound into international politics. It's bound into social and cultural identities. It's bound into civil wars. It's uh, it's bound into the rights of the individual. If you think about um, the long struggle for Catholic emancipation in England, for example, you know, hundreds of years, um, your your position on the issues originally raised by Martin Luther becomes. Um, uh, becomes a, a marker of identity and a marker of your civil liberties. So that and, that and that's just not the case in the Middle Ages. So you have been listening to Dan Jones, author of Powers and Thrones, A New History of the Middle Ages. That was the final part of our Medieval Masterclass series. I do hope you've enjoyed it. As I said at the start, if you'd like to watch the video of us having the conversation and enjoy the extended audience Q&A that we had, 
you can do that at our website, historyextra.com forward slash video. You do need to be a website subscriber to access that content. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman, and Brittany Colley. To find more of our history content and podcast, go to historyextra.com.